Kia ora, and welcome to Venn Presents, a series of conversations exploring the depth and richness of the Christian tradition between the host Sam Bloor and members of the Venn team and wider Venn community. Each short series of Venn Presents will expand on some of the themes that have emerged from Venn's work, including our programs, events, books, and our monthly publication Common Ground. The topics will be wide-ranging, from exploring Christian faith and doctrine to engagement with wider culture, including family, business, the arts, education, music, and sport. Our hope is that through each series of Venn Presents, you'll be able to reimagine how the gospel might look in the communities and callings you find yourself in today. Now let's go ahead and listen to the latest episode. Welcome to this podcast series on the Ascension, Pentecost and the Church. My name's Sam Bloor and I'm joined for this conversation by my good friend and the CEO of the Venn Foundation, Nathan McClellan. Great to have you here, mate. Very good to be here <laughs> for the inaugural. For the very first That's time right. that we're trying this. This is the uh, the pilot, the prototype, if you like. Mm. It might end up being the only one we do, depending on how it goes. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure on me now. I was joking that I've only got 20 gigs left on my hard drive. And so if we're still talking in 20 gigs time, something has gone horribly wrong and we will have forgiven you for tuning out a long time ago. Although our wives would not be surprised if we used 20 gigs. 20 gigs worth of recording time. This really has flowed out of uh, a couple of things that we did during the lockdown time where we put together a initially weekly offering that was written called The Common Ground, Mm. uh, and there were editions of that that came out every week, and then fortnightly, moving to monthly. We also did something called Lockdown Radio, where we interviewed people who wrote some of the articles Mm. for that, and then some of our alumni and friends from, you know, the uh, the community that's formed in and around Venn. But what we found during that time, and you and I had this conversation a number of times, because you wrote several of those articles, is that... 10 minutes of interview really just isn't enough to try and expand on some of the sorts of things we were talking about. Mm. And here's three of them right here, right? The Ascension, Pentecost, and the Church. And so we wanted to follow up by at least trialing longer conversations around some of those themes and many others. We've got uh, not just Ben's staff, uh, some of our board members, some of our alumni are involved in some areas that would really lend themselves to these kinds of conversations, either in an interview format, maybe a panel type format. And so we're trialing it with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great opportunity. So thank you for having me as your first <laughs> guest. This is a day of new beginnings. Time to We are going to try and locate, if we can, lyrics of songs or hymns and insert those along the way, if we can find some that are appropriate, because some of the material we're covering is just so theologically rich. You know, Nathan, you'd agree, people certainly from ages past used to sing a fair bit of their theology. Totally. Something that every worship leader and songwriter should take note of. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's been kind of encouraging to see a bit more of that. I, Mm. you know, have noticed Mm. even in some of the stuff coming out of, you know, places where maybe it was a bit theologically thin, you know, over the years, there is a, a, a sort of a, a learning from that and yes. a re-engagement with, with scripture and, and sometimes just with like with doctrine, like mm. actually mm. singing out uh, confessional statements mm. uh, that wouldn't have been out of place in churches a couple of hundred years ago. Mm. I mean, there is something about singing, isn't there, that 
we we commit those things that we're singing to memory a lot more easily. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think there's something powerful in that. That's what. That's why we teach. Particularly as kids. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's why we're teaching our boys particular um, hymns. Anyone who's babysat for them um, will <laughs> will know that they might get a little voice at bedtime saying, will you sing Amazing Grace for us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so look, keep an ear out for that. Even if it's just a song at the end, we'll try to find something that sort of fits the theology of what we're talking about as well. In the Gospel of John, his reference to just as Moses lifted the snake up in the desert, so the Son of Man must be raised up, being raised up in three ways. Mm. He's raised up on the cross. Mm. He then gets sort of glorified in, uh, in, in the glorification, continues in the resurrection, and then ultimately in the, in the ascension as well. So three times the Son of Man is lifted up. Three times. It's really interesting, isn't it? And, and actually it's worth noting before those three ascents, there's actually a prior descent, right. um, yes. which we see we see actually explicitly named in the creed where it says, for us, this is referring to uh, the Son of God, the eternal word, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven yes, um, and was born of the Virgin Mary and became uh, fully human or man. So it's interesting you've got within, within this creedal, uh, structure a series of, of descents and ascents. You were saying to me that that's one of the ways to actually not make sense of the creed, but that you can actually map out the creed and what's what's going on there. Correct. And yeah. John opens with that descent, mm. doesn't he? In, a, in he the does. beautiful and well-known part of his prologue. It's an, it's um, an incredible passage. That really he moved, moved into the neighbourhood to quote Eugene Peterson's beautiful way of saying it. Mm. Mm. You've called this before, and in the short interview we did for Lockdown Radio, you called this the forgotten doctrine, the ascension. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, it's a doctrine that we don't often talk about. It's one that doesn't really animate our Christian imaginations. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, uh, as Christians in the modern world, we probably don't follow the church calendar as, as much as Christians have historically. And so because of that, we don't tend to uh, attend to this doctrine because we're not following the calendar. But it is a prominent feast date within the calendar. So uh, this is one of the reasons Venn and its work is encouraging people to attend to the church calendar because it does encourage us to focus on the totality of Christ's life and work uh, as well as what God has done, is doing, and will do in the world. And so I think that's one of the reasons it's sort of fallen out of yes, uh, our, yes. our, our talk and, our, and, it, and it doesn't illuminate our imaginations in the way that it um, has historically. And I think a couple of the images that uh, the Ascension invites us to focus in on, particularly Christ as our victorious King and our great High Priest, are not really images that have a lot of cachet in our culture, if I can put it that way. Sure. Um, But I I do think because of that, our Christian walks are impoverished in certain ways because this 
this doctrine which focuses on Christ as king and priest gives us something in our for our Christian journey that we actually really do need if we think about all of the opportunities and challenges that we face in our Christian life. So if you were to give us sort of a, a, a pithy sort of creedal thing around just what the doctrine of the ascension is, mm. and you can go a little longer than the line or two in the creed, mm. but what essentially is the, the doctrine of the ascension, just to, to really clarify what that is? Yeah, so in the creed, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So the idea is here, Christ has gone from the earthly realm to be uh, with the Father bodily. That's really important. Uh, yes. the, the human nature that he now has as his own, as part of the incarnation, ascends to be with the Father in heaven, in the heavenly realm. And he is at the right hand of the Father. So this language of being at the right hand of someone is really to communicate um, a position of authority, status, power. Yes. So Jesus is the one as our ascended Lord who is really the king and priest over all of creation. Yes. Uh, yes. So this is what the doctrine's signaling. And actually, worth noting, um, where the creed goes here, that this is the Nicene Creed when we say creed, um, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right, right hand of the Father, and he will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. So there's this promissory note, I think, that Christ will come back as uh, king, as priest, and as the judge of all of creation to put the world to rights, to, to ensure that peace, justice are established. Um, which arises from his victory uh, in cross and resurrection. Yes. Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified. Forgiveness is in you. Descended into darkness, you rose in glorious Now, the Pentecostal in me, as you're talking about, he goes up, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, wants to jump to so that the Spirit can get poured out. And, you know, we're going to get there, Sam. I know, we're gonna I know. Get I'm going to have to discipline myself, right? Like that's session number two. We're going to get there, those things. But there is a beautiful way that these things hang together. Um, I find that most years, if I'm if I'm thrown either one of the sermons around Christmas time or Easter time, it's really hard to talk about one without the other. And in fact, all of these doctrines, there's a way they hang together. And so, of course, you want to go on to what that connects to. But we are going to discipline ourselves. We're going to stay here for a while. And I, I will will ask you to maybe expand a little bit on this idea of uh, of king. Our, mm. our king and high priest, mm. and in terms of like so, so why why does that why does that matter? What's you know you, we, it can it can stay lofty, but I imagine for you it's not just a lofty concept. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful lofty concept, but it doesn't stay there. No, and I think all of Christian doctrines meant to be like this. Um, it, it's meant to land in our lives in in ways that do help us to live more faithfully for Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. So, I mean, anyone who's done the creed with me in the fellowship knows this. I always try to bring it down to 
how does this land on on the ground for you? So let, let's try and do that with these two images. Mm. Um, the, the image of Jesus as the victorious King. In his cross and resurrection, Jesus has defeated the dominion of sin and death. That's what's happened there. Um, but we we know when we look at the world around us, when we look at our own lives, when we look at our families, when we look at our wider communion, communities, we do see uh, the influence of sin and death still. We, we see the brokenness of the world. I mean, sin literally means to miss the mark. We're meant to, we're meant to live and be as humans in particular ways, and we know that we fall short of that, that mark often. And we see the disruption and the brokenness of the world. So that's um, that's very much still in play. There's an influence there of sin. Even though we've been released from that, that dominion, we still see its influence. But what we do know is that Christ, as the victorious king, has defeated those realities. And one day when he comes back um, uh, for, for the second time and the second mm-hmm. coming to establish fully that victory, we will see that complete and total mm. um, victory that he won in cross and resurrection playing out. But we live between the times, right? This is how theologians often talk about it. So in our everyday lives, when we face these things, I think one of the temptations is actually to lose hope and to give up. It's a very real, real, real temptation mm. when we face difficulty or challenge or discouragement. And what this doctrine encourages us to do is to look to Jesus as our uh, great victorious king mm. and to contemplate the fact that he has achieved this victory mm-hmm. and that that actually gives us the ability to continue to walk faithfully or actually in the metaphor that Hebrews 12 uses to run the race with determination, looking to Jesus Mm. Mm. as the one who is our victorious king. Mm. And I know for myself, I have to, I have to remind myself of the fact that he is the one who's achieved this victory Mm. and that one day he will come back to fully uh, establish what he has won in cross and resurrection and that provides me and I know others with the, with the motivation to keep going. Mm. Um, mm. That, hey, this is not over. Um, that one day we will see him fully um, bring the victory that he has won to its fruition. And that we need him too. Eh? Uh, there is certainly at times I've, I've heard churches, particularly maybe in the, in the comfortable West, actually being challenged by by others, do you actually need him to come back or do you guys think you're doing okay by yourselves, you know? Um, and I think not to sort of place this within the events right now that are going on as though this is a time that's way, way different to any other time. But I think what you're seeing happen at the moment with the, the Black Lives Matter, the idea of injustices, we are being a little bit rattled around our ability to hold things together ourselves. We Ultimately, we... We need that victorious king. We do. And I think that's been something that churches in the global south have actually been a great reminder to, quote-unquote, more comfortable churches Mm. that there are things that need the the king to not only be reminded of that Mm. he's king, but he does need to come back Mm. 
and put things right. We're not going to be able to do it without him. We're not. And I think this even lands, it lands at the level of like big issues that we're facing in our world. It also lands in terms of individual lives. I mean, I, I watched my dad um, with stage four cancer. Um, now, actually, miraculously, he survived it. But there was a period of time there where he, he didn't know uh, whether he would make it. But he took real encouragement from the fact that Jesus uh, had conquered sin and death. Yes. And he knew that this wasn't the end. Yes. Um, and therefore that gave him the ability, I think, to live well in the world, not fearing death, valuing all of the opportunities that he had with friends and family because he knew actually that this was not the end. It enabled him to live well. And I think that we shouldn't underestimate as Christians what that actually mean, means for us. Yes. And if if people don't have an understanding or an experience of that, um, when faith with difficulty and challenge, it can find that often the, the pantry is empty, if I can use that metaphor. Well, yeah, and I think I told this story on radio, but it's worth repeating here that a friend of mine from church actually came to faith by watching a series of Rob Harley interviews, actually, that he'd done for some program that he distributed to churches. And the thing that absolutely got to this guy and ended up converting him was the calm with which one of the guys being interviewed talked about his own brain tumour and the fact that he was probably going to be dead before the interviews were even published or, or, or distributed. And this guy was watching it, going, "How can anyone do that? I'm terrified of this thing. If I'm, if I'm honest, I don't. Mm. I try to, mm. I try to, you know, <laughs> not think about it. I try to distract myself. You know, we don't live every day as though we're going to die. But he said, "That's the one thing that terrifies me." And he said, "How can a guy sit there? I, w- I want what he's got. If he can just sit there and talk, not in a blasé fashion about his death, because he had his young family around him, but actually with a confidence that he would see them again." Well, this is why it's good news, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, to state the obvious, it, yeah. it is good news that death does not have the final word. Yes. Um, that, that, that we believe there is life beyond death, and um, that is good news. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, the real kicker is that we die, right? Jesus could put everything else right, but if he didn't put that right... In some ways, it would be a waste of time. And in fact, Paul says, doesn't he? We would, of all people, be the ones you'd have to pity the most. Yeah, we great. How, how we, dumb are we if we're putting all our eggs in this basket and it turns out to be false? I love that passage of First Corinthians 15, actually, where there's the B exposition of of what the the resurrection is, and then at right at the end, I think it's uh, 15 verse 58. Um, Paul says, therefore, brothers and sisters, you know that your work in the Lord is not in vain. That's an incredible, it's almost an unexpected thing that Paul would give this big, long exposition and then come back to, hey, but what you're doing now is not in vain. And I think if we go back to the Ascension, same thing, like our running the race, even when we're facing difficulties and challenges, is not in vain because we have one who has achieved this victory over sin and death. Up from the grave he arose With a mighty triumph for his foes He arose a victory
shelter from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. And somehow, even though there's mystery around this, the good that we are doing now uh, in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit will somehow be pulled through into the new age mm. uh, and will continue in, in some way. So the work that we're doing now is as parents, as friends, as mm. workers, engineers, doctors, nurses, teachers, lawyers, that good work, when it's been done in Christ by the power of the Spirit, because the fact that Christ has conquered uh, sin and death, somehow they're going to get pulled in to the new age. Mysterious though that, yes. that might be. There will be some discontinuity, I know that, but somehow there will be a continuity there. And so we're encouraged not to give up. No. Because actually Christ has won this victory. Anyone who's done the fellowship in the last few years will know that I open our module on a theology of vocation with Tolkien's great essay, Leaf by Niggle. Yes. Where in a, quite an autobiographical way, because he'd got bogged down in his own project and he was trying to, so the story is about someone called Niggle, uh, which means to kind of tinker away at the details, which actually Tolkien thought he described his own personality. He would tinker away with all the detail of his world and he was afraid he would never get the thing done. And so the story is about a painter who paints, he wants to, he got this image of painting an amazing tree, but all he can ever get out in his lifetime is a leaf of the, of the tree. And I'm summarizing a sort of a 12 or 13 page essay here. But when he finally is called away by death and he goes on this journey, and that itself is, is quite a wonderful kind of um, description of, of, of God in that, in that sort of journey. But he, go, he gets to the other side, quote unquote, and there's the tree. Mm. Uh, and his leaf is sitting on it. And it's just a beautiful way of capturing that. He never got out what he was hoping to and what he what he wanted to, but his faithful little leaf carries carries on through. It's such a it's such a great little story, isn't it? Because also we don't see the big picture. We don't see the fullness of it. And sometimes we do wonder if the, the little part of the vineyard we're toiling in is it significant. But but actually again because of what Christ has done, um, what we do will be placed in a much bigger picture. Yes, uh, when He comes again, and I think I think one of the gifts actually of living in the next stage will be to understand yep. the significance of of what what we've what we've done, and that will be a real gift. Yes, because he he had in mind a whole tree, but of course that tree is sitting in a forest, and it's got a backdrop of mountains, so the, the vista is literally the the whole thing when he gets to see it of course a great green shadow came between him and the sun niggle looked up and fell off his bicycle before him stood the tree his tree finished if he could say that of a tree that was alive its leaves opening its branches growing and bending in the wind that niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch he gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It is a gift, he said. 
So that's Jesus, our high priest. Uh, sorry, our king. Yes. Let, let's move to high priest. What, high what's, priest. What's, yeah, what's going so, on with that sort of imagery? This is an image we see particularly in the book of Hebrews. And the, the letter to the Hebrews is, um, well, some people would say it's a sort of extended sermon on Christ's ascension into heaven. And that book really talks about Jesus having made a way for us into the very presence of God, into, um, as Hebrews puts it, the throne room of grace. And in, in making that way for us, we too are able to enter into the very presence of God. So again, there's some hints of Pentecost here, which we'll, we'll come back to in a bit. I think one of the encouraging things about Jesus as our great high priest is that the book of Hebrews, and actually this is picked up in Romans as well, Jesus is praying for us. Mm-hmm. He's praying for us as one who fully identifies with us. Mm-hmm. Like when, when the eternal word, the Son of God, becomes a human being, God is not playing at being a human being. He becomes one of us. He identifies with us. And I find this a, a deeply moving picture of Christ before the Father praying for us. And actually, we are invited to join with Jesus in prayer, with the prayer of Jesus, um, that God would bring this world that we find ourselves fully into all that he intends Mm -hmm. for it. And there have been moments in my life where I've struggled to pray. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm sure we've all had those moments. And during those times when I haven't been able to give voice to some of the things that I'm experiencing, I've found it a great encouragement to know that Jesus is praying for me. And he identifies with me. He knows my weaknesses. He is in every way as I have been, but without sin. And that's a big caveat. Sure. But he has fully entered into the reality of what it means to be to be human. Um, and I also find that, so I found it encouraging when I've struggled to know that he's the one who is praying uh, for me and for not just for me, but for all the people of God. But also, I, I find that actually moving in terms of joining my prayer with him um, as I really work out my my vocation, which is the general human vocation, actually, uh, Christian vocation, to be a priest, to actually bring the trials and tribulations and difficulties and joys and all that we experience as human beings and to bring it actually into the throne room of grace before uh, before the Father with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that we didn't have time to unpack and we sort of hinted that we would in our radio conversation around this is a, trying to formulate a response when people are tempted and it is a tempting thing to think, yeah, but did you know, Jesus was never a parent. Um, <laughs> Jesus was never, um, you know, I've heard some say Jesus was never a woman. He didn't experience what it's like to go through some of the, the things that 
women go through at times, uh, you know, some of the unjust things that that woman experienced, even in his day, mm. uh, never mind ours. Um, and the, you know, the, 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 the small amount we've got of sort of ca- capturing that and those sort of things he went through, the things that we went through was tempted in every way. Um, that is something that sometimes I'm tempted to think, yeah, there there is a bit of a, a point to that. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have a response to that? I mean, well, you, well, you were going to throw it back to yeah, me. Yeah, <laughs> what, what would be your thoughts on that? How would yeah. you respond? I mean, I do have a response, but I'm curious to, to, to hear what you would you would say to that. Well, as I do often with, with a lot of questions like that, I, I, I follow it through almost to its to its logical conclusion, you know, okay, so if Jesus wasn't, you know, married with kids, uh, do we need a mar- Jesus who is married for a start, or do we need a Jesus who's married with kids? Do we need Jesus who's married with three kids? Do we need Jesus who's married with three kids and our third one who's fiery and feisty? And at what point, like how many Jesuses do we need in order to get the job done yes. and to identify in that way? So I, f- I find myself almost like tracking that down mm. and therefore saying, we have to take scripture at its word that he is mm. he is um, he is the the human one and he's doing what he does mm. uh, as as the the second Adam mm. who's able to do what the first Adam couldn't do mm-hmm. and be our representative in in all of these ways mm. and to um, to sort of take that. At, at its word and take the Jesus that we've got revealed to us, not the one that we would like to have. But also, and I would want to have some sympathy while recognizing that one of the gifts of something, for example, like feminist theology, has been to critique sometimes where the church has gone down some yes. places that have introduced some imbalances. Yes. And they've done, you know, they, they've done a a disservice mm. to the Jesus that we're given mm. or to the expectations that flow from that. So to, to recognize some of the critiques in trying to mm. rectify imbalances in theology and yet sit um, kind of comfortable in the knowledge mm. that he is the the king for everyone and he is the high priest for everyone mm. and there's something in the mystery of Jesus mm. where he's able to be representing us in those ways. Mm. Because scripture says he does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. All of our human experience is quite particular, right? Like your human experience is very different to mine, which is different to Bronwyn's, which is different to Julia. But we we do still talk about a common human experience or a common human nature. In other words, we recognize that even though my life journey is different to your life journey, we we still experience something in common. Yes, uh, there is a common human experience, and we share. I'm going to use a philosophical term here: a common human essence or nature. And I think what what Jesus actually uh, assumes is is actually a, is a particular body. It's a Jewish body. Yes, um, he is a particular man in in first century. Uh, Israel, we can't actually escape from that. There's actually a particularity about that, but but in that, in in becoming a a particular human being, he is also shared in that general human nature, which we 
we in our everyday speech talk about, right? We recognize that there is something that we share in common, a common nature or essence. And that's really what we're talking about, I think, when we say he's in every way as we were, but without without sin. Um, d- there's a there's a famous quote by one of the church fathers, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, um, the Nazianzan. He he said, whatever he did not assume, this is talking about Jesus. Whatever he did not assume, he did not heal. And this just becomes a way of talking about Jesus has to be fully human. Mm. He has to uh, make human nature his own if his life is to defeat sin and death. So what we all share in common as human beings, the human nature that we share, he... um, he has to assume, otherwise he has not healed it. other thing is just worth saying because you went back to this notion of the first Adam I think this is really interesting there's a um, significant Christian theologian from the from the second century called uh, Irenaeus great great bishop of faith and in uh, one of his works against heresies he talks about how Jesus as the second Adam retraces human experience mm-hmm. and he's able to do what the the first Adam um, fails to do um, he's the one who actually does defeat the devil mm. um, in the garden whereas you know the first Adam Adam can't and I think this is one of the reasons the Gospels do try and portray portray Jesus as the one who retraces, um, I use the technical term, recapitulates human experience. I mean, we, we see this, you know, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, right, where Jesus goes through the waters of baptism, like Israel goes through the Red Sea, and then he goes into the wilderness of 40 days, like, yes. like Israel goes into the water. So there's actually an... an an intentionality with how these stories are told yes. to show that Jesus is retracing Israel's experience and retracing the general human experience. So I think that's when we say he's human, that's sort of what we're getting at. This this general nature that we all share. Um, Allowing for that particularity also, I think, if we if we hold that wisely, protects us from doing some just simplistic things with the Gospels too, I think. Um, we were chatting about this earlier in the week where people sort of grab this and, oh, I'm going to do it because Jesus did this exact thing. And there are things to draw out, but I'm glad you've gone right back to the 
the church fathers right because there is something drawing out that nuance we don't have to do afresh every single time you know uh, a decade ticks over much less a, a century but there's a long history of drawing out what is particular to that time and space uh, time and place and what is something that we are to follow in the footsteps of and to have him as our exemplar hmm. Uh, because I've seen that done in overly simplistic ways too. Well, Jesus is like that. You know, I'm going to follow this um, exactly. Um, in terms of it being on behalf of all people, and here's where I am going to start pushing us towards uh, our session number two. Because in some ways, I'm I am a Pentecostal. I'm itching to get to Pentecost, and at Pentecost, you see, on the day it's poured out, every tongue. You know, yes. like you get this kind of like, it is for all people, right? Yes. And what better way to show it than everyone hears the gospel in their own tongue. Mm-hmm. And so now might be a good time to, to wrap. We, we did talk about around the half hour mark and we've, we've hit about that. Um, if we uh, sort of press pause and, and pick this conversation up yes. um, with what you referred to as we started, the, the, the next descent. Yeah, the descent of the dove, the descent <laughs> of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, the tongues of fire. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll pick that up then. Thanks. Thank you. On to part two. Yeah.